1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again, and I'm thrilled to have today's guest with us for the full program to talk about his amazing career, the current state of American politics, and the presumption of grace. Political analyst and reporter Mark Halpern has covered every American national election since 1988. He currently writes the Wide World of News Daily Tip Sheet and hosts Mark Halpern's focus group on Newsmax TV. In 2019, he authored the book How to Beat Trump America's top political strategist on what it will take. Mark Halpern, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. Get a chance to talk. No, I appreciate your
1: time. Mark has covered American politics since 1988, has written a handful of best selling books, and has worked for ABC News, NBC News, Bloomberg, and Time Magazine as a reporter, producer, analyst, and an anchor. Mark, there are so many current events questions that I want to get to. <laughs> but you've been writing and speak about something that I'd be remiss if we didn't begin with today. It's the presumption of grace. What is the presumption of grace and why is it so important these days?
2: Chris, I think the challenges we face as a country are so many right now. The pandemic, tensions over racial equality and inequality, uh, the economy. Uh, There's just, there's so many others I could list, but it's all being done under conditions that I consider to be far from ideal. What I see now, what I've seen for the last couple of decades is a presumption of hate. You see it most clearly on social media, sometimes on cable TV, talk radio, but also in people's daily lives. The presumption that another person doesn't deserve grace, that another person should not be treated like a human being. If someone does something wrong, that they not be open to the possibility of receiving forgiveness. All the problems we face, all the challenges we, we confront right now, I think would be much better uh, more we'd be more able to deal with them if we afforded each other a presumption of grace and what that means simply is treating other people like human beings treating other people the way you'd like to be treated it's a word that's got religious connotations for some but most basically it's just the idea of not hating other people from the beginning to try to teach to try to treat everyone even the people who have wronged you even the people who you don't like one bit based on their positions or their performance on the national town square, treating them, affording them the presumption of grace. It doesn't cost us a dollar to do. There's no budget deficit spending involved. It's not very complicated. It just requires all of us to look towards others with a presumption of grace. And I most want to do it on Twitter, because I believe Twitter drives so much negativity in our society. So in the beginning, at least, that's where my focus is, to try to get people to uh, uh, adopt the attitudes, the practices of Gandhi, of Dr. King, of others who, when faced with hatred, when faced with division, afforded all those around them a presumption of grace.
1: You talk about social media, and we know what happened um, on Capitol Hill with, with Twitter and Facebook after the events from a few weeks ago. Going into the election, my wife showed me a post that she saw on her Facebook feed of somebody saying that they couldn't be a friend with this other person because of that specific political belief. Yeah, or stance. You know, How do we get to the point where our public officials, in this case, you know, many ordinary people have lost that presumption of grace?
2: Chris, it's, it's the question I get asked so often, which is, well, how could I afford the presumption of grace to Donald Trump? Or how could I afford the presumption of grace to the 80 million people who voted for Joe Biden? Can I have a pass on a few people or 80 million people or 74 million people? It's, it's, it's gotten to the point, again, where people just reflexively extend the presumption of hate and it sounds like a simple thing, but it's hard. Every day, I can feel in my own heart a presumption of hate towards people. It's, 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 it's unfortunately part of being human, but what I want people to do is to say, all right, I don't agree with that person politically, or I don't think, I, I don't like how they voted in the presidential election, or I don't like what they wrote on Facebook, but I'm going to start by extending the presumption of grace and then having a conversation with them, treating them like a human being, Trying to exchange ideas, trying to reach some sort of common ground. I do focus groups every week, as you mentioned, uh, for a program I do, and usually we have four Biden voters, four Trump voters, and during the breaks, they extend the presumption of grace to each other without my even asking them to. They ask how each, where they each, everyone lives. They talk about uh, you know normal everyday things, and everything's fine. When we talk, start talking about politics, about Trump and Biden, etc. That's when things get a little rougher. So it's not, on one level, it's not, it's not easy because of how people currently feel because we are so divided and so polarized. On the other hand, as I said before, it doesn't cost a dollar. It just requires some concentration and some dedication to a very simple idea, which is if we all extend the presumption of grace to, to everyone or nearly everyone, maybe people will find some exceptions where they don't feel they can, but if we extend it as universally as we possibly can, I think we'll all be better off. I think we'll set a a better, not just a better example for our kids and our grandkids, but leave the world a better place for them and lay the groundwork to have the possibility that some of the very negative uh, uh, feelings and and passions that infuse not just our politics but our culture can be set aside and we can have a different kind of society.
1: As unusual as it may sound to say this, I'm going to ask you several questions I asked last week's guest. Claire Reynolds, who's the president and CEO of the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay, who's talking about behavioral health. Although you and Claire obviously have very different professions, I think your perspectives on these topics are equally illuminating and constructive. And I think the questions are related to to that presumption of grace you talk about. So first, what can we do to diffuse some of this tension between those who have ardently supported President Trump and those who really can't stomach him? And does it simply go back to the presumption of grace, or is there more that we can do?
2: Well, I, I'd start and end with the presumption of grace, just because if you if you try to make it more complicated than that, more intellectual than that, I think you start to lose some folks because they say, "Well, look, I could never extend the presumption of grace to a Trump voter because I disagree with so much about about what they what they stand for." I think that that um, understanding where people are coming from. You know, I, I don't believe, based on my own experience, that all seventy four million people who voted for the president are racists. Just don't believe it. I've talked to a lot of them, and I know, I know why many voted the way they did, but I can't tell you the number of Biden supporters who tell me, I can't, I can't extend the presumption of grace to anyone who voted for Donald Trump because they're racists, or at least they're enabling racists. So I think trying to walk in other people's shoes, to talk to them, to understand why they feel differently about politics as someone else. But again, it's not just politics, it's also just our wider culture. Um, people, uh, even younger people, who you think might, might have a different attitude, I find that they, they also uh, would do uh, well and society would benefit if they would extend the presumption of grace. So it starts with the same, I think extending the presumption of grace, then trying to talk to people and understand what they're about. And then I think, um, you know, sort of more fundamentally to ask yourself at all times, will hating this person, will, will extending them the presumption of hate, will that really make my life better? It feels good. Sometimes it's tempting sometimes, but I think in the end, no one benefits the person who's extending the presumption of hate. I don't think benefits the person who's hated. I don't think benefits. I don't think society benefits. So it's hard to do, but, but the most important thing is to try to understand other people, understand yourself, and then go back to just the notion of whatever that someone else says, whatever they does, whatever they do, or whoever they support politically, I'm still going to extend them the presumption of grace. Simple
1: concept. Yeah. So how, how optimistic are you that we can eventually get back into a civil dialogue about politics and that that presumption of grace will prevail, or have things really been irreparably changed by the past four years?
2: Well, I'm an optimistic person, and I believe that the status quo is so corrosive that I think we're going to pull this off. But it's a challenge. I hear from people all the time, people like you, people like your listeners, who say, They don't want it to be like this. They don't want a presumption of hate to dominate uh, what goes on in their lives. But, you know, a story I like to tell is about uh, uh, a a voter who came up to me when I was covering politics in in South Carolina. And he said, I don't like, this was when President Obama was in office. He said, I don't like Barack Obama at all. I said, well, what, what don't you like about him? He said, well, two things. One is he's a Muslim. He's a communist. He's a horrible person. He's just a bad guy. And I said, "Well, what's what's the other thing you don't like?" He said, "He's failed to bring us together as a people." And I think that, that that kind of duality of of even people who who feel so strongly whether they're in the red tribe or the blue tribe, even amongst those folks, not just purple people, there's a desire to have the country be brought together. The focus group I did last week, I asked the uh, I asked the group. It was again for Biden folks, for Trump folks. I asked them two questions. One was. How many of you think Donald Trump will be pulling for Joe Biden cheering for Joe Biden to succeed? No one raised their hand. I asked them uh I asked them uh to 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 tell me if if they were if they thought the election was stolen or not. Uh and the Democrats all said it wasn't, the Republicans all said it was. I said raise your hand if you're certain about your position. All of them raised their hand. So, we're up against we're up against a uh uh a challenge, but I asked the same group: Would you like Joe Biden to bring the country together? Would you like that? All of them said yes. They all said they wanted that. I asked the Trump people: What could he do? <laughs> One of them said: Well, he could resign. That would bring the country together. Um, so again, it's a challenge, but I believe that that the, that there's a, a majority, what some would call maybe a silent majority, but I don't think they're that silent, that does want our politics to change now. How does it change? You have to change the incentives. Why is the politics of hate so prevalent? Because if you have a talk radio show, not this program, but a traditional talk radio show, if you have a cable TV show, if you have a, a Twitter feed or a blog or you write a newspaper column, chances are if you want to get book deals and speaking contracts and, and other perks, political power, chances are what you need to do is engage in the presumption of hate because that's where the eyeballs are. That's where the dollars follow because right now, the people who vote with their eyeballs, vote with their remote control, those people are all motivated by being in the red drive or the blue drive. What I want to do is find a way to create incentives to say, if you're a politician and you work in a bipartisan way, or if you're on television and you speak in a calm voice, you'll be rewarded because I think people will respond to the incentives and. So the answer to your question, original question, is I'm optimistic that if we can change the incentives, if we can appeal to people's better angels, this can happen. And I don't think there's much of an option. I think it has to happen. And I think as people learn about this concept, I think people will be drawn to it when they consider there's no other obvious way to change the status quo. And the status quo is not sustainable. We are, we've seen violence in the streets of America, and the capital of America. That's not sustainable.
1: You mentioned the presumption of hate and I've always thought that um, the U S politically citizens were, you know, a big bell curve, you know, kind of 80% in the middle, you're going to be red or blue, you know, maybe a little bit of purple in between, and then you've got 10% on the wings. Do you think that that bell curve has gotten flatter where there's more on the wings? Just given this last election.
2: Yeah. Um, It's a good question. You know, Donald Trump is so distorted. Our politics and our, and, our, and our culture, and our broader conversation that whatever flattening might've occurred or not, I think is immaterial. As we head into the uncharted territories of a post-Trump presidency, what happens to 74 million people who voted for them? How many of those 74 million people are open to saying on any given day, hey, Joe Biden did something good, I really like that? How many of them? Because I know that when Barack Obama got elected president, there were Democrats, or Republicans rather, who, who who were open to that. Just as when George Bush got elected, there were Democrats who were open to that. Not all of them, but some. I don't have a great sense about those 74 million people and how many of them are, are, are willing to say on any given day, not Joe Biden's my guy or I approve of the job he's doing, but just on any given day, hey, Joe Biden did something today I liked and I feel good about that and I feel good about the country and our president. I don't know how many, but I don't think it's a lot, but I think I think it's possible that between Joe Biden's actions, maybe the actions of some Republicans, maybe if the presumption of grace can catch on as a real phenomena, I think it's possible that we could see, maybe not people going from Trump supporters to Biden supporters, or even going into the, into the purple area, but just see the willingness to afford the presumption of grace to Joe Biden and to the kind of policies that he plans to pursue.
1: You've talked about the Gang of Grace, and on your website it reads, Please consider my words and then consider joining me in the effort to build a good gang of grace, counter hate with kindness, and incentivize leaders to actually lead. How do our listeners, you know, how do people join the gang of grace?
2: You got the email address right there? Keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the web. I, I didn't write that one down. All right. Uh, it's funny. I, I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper, which I can't find. I'm going to scramble while we talk here and find
3: it. I know it. it's a Gmail. Right.
2: Yeah, it is. I'm going to find it. Um, it's it's uh, w- what we're trying to do is ask people to sign up to join our uh, our enterprise, uh, and um, and and what we're going to do initially is um, is is ask people to join us on Twitter um, to find instances where someone has engaged in the lack of the presumption of of grace, have engaged in the presumption of hatred, and if they do that then uh, we want to come back back at them. We don't want to shame them. We don't want to embarrass them. We don't want to fight them in, in, with harsh language. We don't want to become what we're trying to eradicate. But what we're going to ask people to do is to try to change the dynamics. Because what happens now is when people go on Twitter negatively, they create negative change and they create uh, uh, a mob. We need a mob that's dedicated to pushing back, again, gently with love and compassion and grace to say to people, that's not the way you should behave. And I think if we do that a few times, we can, we can uh, what's the right way to say it? We can change the paradigm. We can get to the point where we can uh, show people that there's, you don't need to be afraid of the mob. That you can join in, and uh, and uh, and participate in a positive way. And if they do that, and we do that a few times, I think we'll get some bullies to back down. I think we'll bring out of the woodwork a bunch of people who say, "Hey, I've been negative on Twitter. I don't want to be negative on Twitter. I want to try to eradicate negativity on Twitter." And if we can do that a few times and really change the way people communicate on Twitter, which is the most negative of the social media platforms, I think we can make a difference. Now. If people want to join our Good Gang of Grace, if people want to be part of this effort on Twitter initially, and then in other ways, neighbor to neighbor, on social media, on television, they can send an email. I found the address as I was talking there. Send it to at gangofgraceatwalkingduck.com. There's also a Gmail one, but send this to at gangofgraceatwalkingduck.com. And if you sign up, we'll be asking you to help us mobilize. We'll see some tweets that we think are extending a presumption of hate. We will not lash out. We won't be sarcastic or mean-spirited. We'll extend that person the presumption of grace, but we'll say, is that really what you want to say? Is that the right way to approach what should be a debate about public policy? And again, I'm hoping people don't feel insulted or, or shamed or attacked. I'm hoping they'll just have their consciousness raised and they'll delete their tweets or reply to, to our group. Right now, what dominates on Twitter is sometimes organized, sometimes just spontaneous, organic gangs of hate. And what they do is not only do they do they drive pe- you know, people who want to extend the presumption of grace away, but they get people fired, they get people um, attacked, they get people doxed, they get people uh, mobbed in all sorts of ways, both virtual and real. We want to put a stop to that. We don't want to stop political debate. We don't, we don't want to eliminate divisions uh, about policy. What we want to do is infuse our dialogue, even on Twitter, and then hopefully everywhere else, with that presumption of grace. So again, gangofgraceatwalkingduck.com. Just shoot us an email, tell us you're interested, and we'll be in touch.
1: Great. And we'll be sure to get that on all of our social media as well to, to help promote it as well. So Mark, they say the turnabout is fair play. Your wide world of news morning roundup of the political scene is absolutely amazing. Not only in the amount of information you share, but the number of thought-provoking questions you pose. An extraordinarily deep list of questions on Friday for your readers. I'm going to pose some of those same questions to you, if that's all right. I might throw Chris,
2: to Chris, one in there as well. It's, Chris, it's fine. Although I put the questions in at the time because I didn't know the answers, but maybe in the time that's passed, <laughs> I will figure figured days. them out. So give it a shot.
1: Well, I'd like to start with what you see happening with President-elect Biden's agenda. Will Joe Biden try to convince the Democratic congressional leadership to pass pass his pandemic relief proposal intact, or will he just consider his proffered plan as a starting, re- starting point?
2: Yeah, you know, every president, regardless of party, regardless of whether his or her party controls Congress, has to deal with this question, which is, you know, the president can propose legislation, but it's got to go through the committee process and then onto the floor of both chambers, and then they've got to reconcile what they passed. Some presidents in the past have said some general principles or a slightly specific proposal, but have at it, Congress, make whatever changes you're going to make. That's the way the process works. Others have said, no, 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 this is really what I want. And and they fight with their staff and, and leveraging public opinion to kind of get Congress to yield something not identical to what they propose, but pretty close. Joe Biden is, as much as he's, you know, was vice president and obviously a presidential candidate, and now president um, to be, He's really still a creature of Capitol Hill. That's where he spent the bulk of his, his career, his adult life. And so, my guess is that he's going to be very deferential to the prerogatives of Congress. Now, both chambers controlled narrowly uh, by, by the Democrats and try to produce legislation that is true to the principles and the kind of the spirit of what he proposes, but really expects a lot of changes to be made. Now, the question that that raises is since the Democrats control the majority narrowly, Will the changes move the thing more to the left? I'd say the Democratic Congress, certainly in the House, is to the left of Joe Biden on some issues. Some of the prominent committee chairs, like Bernie Sanders, also to the left of Joe Biden. Or will Joe Biden uh, work the process to get more Republican input? If he does seek Republican input, two things will happen. One is the legislation will move to the right. If he's going to get Republican support, it's going to have to move to the right. Right. And the other is, as he seeks Republican support, Democrats on the progressive wing of the party are going to be angry and say, why did we fight to be Donald Trump in order to let Republicans control our legislative agenda? That balancing act is such a big challenge. And I think will, to a large extent, define certainly the first year of of, uh, Joe Biden's presidency, how how he reconciles the desire to work with Republicans, but also to get things passed and to and to stay true to the center-left support that got him in the White House.
1: Talk about that Bouncing Act. Could anything like the $1.9 trillion plan that Biden proposed last week get 60 votes in the Senate, or the Democrats have to go to a Plan B or C or Hail Hail Mary?
2: It's hard based on the reaction we've seen so far, based on the Republicans' posture uh, during the lame duck session. It's hard to see 10 Republicans voting for a package that large. Uh, you know, one of the Republicans that, that Joe Biden has high hopes of working with on some issues uh, and who he's talked to at least a couple of times during the transition is Mitt Romney. And he's become, you know, from 2012 when he was, uh, you know, persona non grata with people on the left, he's become something of a favorite of some on the left because of his vote for uh, convict President Trump for the first impeachment, because of some of the things he said about Donald Trump. I don't think Mitt Romney is the least bit interested in voting for a package that size. His, his posture is still of a fiscal conservative. And so there are Democrats who'd like the package to be bigger than 1.9 trillion. There, there are Republicans, I think, who would support something at a lower level. But I find it hard to believe he's gonna get 10 votes for that. Now, if he can't, he could switch the process to the so-called reconciliation process, which is a, a quirk of the way Congress works that will allow him to pass some aspects of what he'd like to do with just 50 votes or Democrats could choose to get rid of the filibuster for legislation, which would allow them to pass things with 50 votes. But none of, it's not clear how fruitful that will be for a variety of reasons. So, And Joe Biden's made it clear he wants to pass this package with Republican support. So if he can't get 60 votes for this package, and I don't think he can, what's he gonna do? Because if he starts moving to accommodate Republicans, as I said, I think he's gonna run into some problems on the, on the left. Now, we're talking a lot about process, Let's talk about the actual needs of the American people. If you look at that package, there's a lot in there that many Americans would say is needed. We're still, in a, we're still fighting the pandemic. Uh, Joe Biden has, has expensive ideas about how to fight it better than Donald Trump fought it. We're still dealing with schools and restaurants and other businesses that are closed down or, or not running at full capacity in a normal way. There's certainly lots of need. Many economists say we need to spend more. We need to run up the deficit more in order to, to stimulate the economy to get things back humming the way they were before. So there's certainly reason to believe that what Joe Biden is proposing has some merit. Does it have $1.9 trillion in merit? That's what we're going to see if Congress thinks at least.
1: And with other early Biden legislative efforts, you know, will they get to the Hill and, and media attention? Or will the COVID measure just blot out everything else for now?
2: I think right now, between the impeachment trial, assuming there is one, and uh, and th- this this major piece of COVID legislation, most other things are going to take a back seat in terms of media attention. Now, Joe Biden is also proposing an immigration package that has a path to legal status, a path to citizenship for over 10 million people in the country illegally. I think that that, that could well get a lot of attention. And that could actually be something as much as uh, it's, uh, it's a campaign promise fulfilled to propose it that's something that i think could actually set the partisan tensions uh, back up to the levels they've been at and make it a real challenge for joe biden to try to get bipartisan cooperation on the impeachment trial and on the pandemic relief package immigration is one of the one of the most uh, tense and complicated issues public policy issues it it implicates so many different aspects of american life and to go from the donald trump presidency where you had a president with a much different posture towards legal and illegal immigration to what Joe Biden's trying to do, which is far to the left of what Barack Obama tried to do on immigration. And I think you may see some blowback, not just from Republicans, but from some other folks in the country who look at what Joe Biden's trying to do on immigration and feel like they need to uh, reevaluate how much they'd like to see him pass, again, in some other areas as well. So those are the three things that I think will get a lot of attention going forward uh, pending the unexpected, of course.
1: You mentioned earlier the 74 million voters that voted for president Trump. How would you suggest that soon to be president Biden and his supporters approach president Trump's 74 million voters?
2: Chris, this is something I talk to my readers of wide world of news about every day. It's something that I think about all the time. I talk to politicians in both parties. A lot of Democrats have the attitude of don't bother talking to these people. As I said before, they see them as racist. They see them as selfish. Um, I think they have to be part of the conversation. Whatever whatever you think about their views, whatever you think about Donald Trump, it's unfathomable to think that Joe Biden could govern the country in a bipartisan way if he's not going to try to include the 74 million people. I wish he spent more time talking to them. I wish there were people around him who had a more charitable view of them. I think a lot of the people around Joe Biden view anyone who voted for Donald Trump or supports Donald Trump as as, as low, low life, as uh, Hillary Clinton said, "Deplorables," and so I wish he were surrounded by more people who's had a passion for addressing uh, the people who voted for the president, thinking about what policies would animate them, what policies would make them feel like the government was on their side, that the government cares about people like them. I think some of it has to do with word choice and 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 kind of the subtleties of the way Joe Biden talks about Trump supporters, but I think again a lot of it has to do with policy and to find areas on the economy, on the pandemic, on immigration, where at least they'll give him a hearing, at least they'll feel like he understands where they come from. That's supposed to be one of Joe Biden's great strengths. I listen so closely when he talks, I just don't hear him saying things in style or substance that I think uh, have too much potential to cause Trump supporters to think anew about him. And that, I think, is the is, is in some ways a central political question we face right now.
1: We've been talking to political analyst and reporter Mark Halpern, and we'll be right back after a short break.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network
0: on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. listening to next steps forward to reach chris meek or his guest on the show today please call in to 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: we are back with mark halpern And we've been asking Mark the same questions he posed Friday to readers of his morning political tip sheet, Wide World of News. Now, back to your questions on the pandemic. Will the Biden administration do substantially better at combating the disease than the Trump administration did, or will Democrats confront the same kind of challenges?
2: I think that, you know, some critics of Joe Biden supporters of the president say that Biden doesn't really have any ideas that are different than, than what Donald Trump did. I don't think that's true. And I think the main thing it starts with is empowering the states. I'm a big 10th Amendment guy. I really do believe that uh, things that can be done at the state level really should be done there, not by the federal government. But on an issue like this, where a virus crosses state lines, where the amounts of money involved is so big, where best practices need to be shared in real time, I think there's a real uh, requirement that there be a a, a federal and state partnership. And I think you're going to see uh, a less antagonistic relationship between Washington and the states. There's no doubt that Mike Pence adopted a pretty strong pro-state attitude compared to the president's rhetoric. But you, you heard from both governors of both parties that they didn't get everything they wanted from Washington attitudinally and in terms of uh, speed of delivery. And I think the Biden folks at least aim to do that. I also think that Joe Biden will try to defuse the tension that's existed over mask wearing, which of course has become political over the way to close things down uh, and open things up the way to um, adjust to the changing conditions and distribution of the vaccine, which is of course a huge priority. So I think, I think the, the Trump folks have a point when they say that the differences in the policies written on a piece of paper are not as great as the Biden people like them out to be. But again, I believe attitudinally vis-a-vis the state's and I believe in terms of uh, the amounts of money they want to spend and hopefully spend smart, I think there is, there is a pretty big difference. And I do think that their aspiration to use the power of the federal government in partnership with the states to bring the pandemic under control by the end of this calendar year, I think is pretty different than what Donald Trump aspired to. And I hope that it works out.
1: And you think that the U.S. is on track via the vaccine to get the pandemic under control? Or will this never-ending nightmare roll into 2022?
2: I worry about the science aspects of it. You know, we all know that there's this new strain, more uh, communicable, not more dangerous. Uh, I worry that there's another strain now. Most, most the history of most pandemics is when there are new strains, they they aren't more lethal; they're less lethal. But I worry because this has been such an unusual virus to to combat. Um, but I think that that if Joe Biden stays with this notion that. Pretty much everything, not everything, but but most everything else needs to be on hold until this is done. And if the vaccine is as efficacious as the scientists say it is, I think by, you know, Halloween, things could be more normal. Uh, And I think the most important three things are, I think schools need to be back to normal by the fall semester. I think that's a super important thing for all the reasons that any parent like us knows, Uh, but also for the economy, the, the closed schools and kids needing to be taken care of at home poses such a, such a burden on the economy. Second, I think small businesses, particularly including restaurants need to be able to be open and, and earning a living. So we don't see the massive, um, uh, the closings of businesses, which obviously have huge implications for, for the economy. And then finally, the uncertainty in areas that are still uncertain to say the least, even if they're not all the way back, uh, in terms of commercial and, and, and individual home, uh, 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 rents and mortgages. I think that's something that needs more certainty to it. Obviously, the tourism industry, the entertainment industry, live entertainment, all that needs to have some certainty attached to it. So it's not switching back and forth, opening and closing. Uh, If those three things can be achieved, and I think they can be by Halloween, then I think we could enter next year uh, headed towards, again, it'll never be the way it was before completely because of hand-washing and mask-wearing. Frankly, I never understood why we were all shaking hands um, and spreading germs like that. but 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 we can be more back to normal. And And again, the most important thing is not these macroeconomic concepts or or policy discussions. It's can parents sit at home with their kids or out in a restaurant with their kids and not feel this constant sense of everything could go wrong? We could be out on the street. We might not be able to pay our electric bill, our heating bill, not be able to buy Christmas presents. All of that uncertainty for families, I think, has really got to be the goal. And, and those policy decisions and, and, and efforts are in service of that goal.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I've been talking through previous shows as well about you talk about parents worrying. You know, one of my biggest fears is this. I call it the mental health tsunami that's going to come on the other side of this. And so, you know, stay tuned for that. But um, to your point, more certainty will make us all feel a bit more at ease and you know, get back yeah. to somewhat normalcy. Mm -hmm. So let's turn the topic in a lot of people's minds, impeachment. How long will Nancy Pelosi hold on to the articles of impeachment before sending them to the Senate? And what's the strategy behind her decision?
2: Well, I think she's certainly going to wait past Joe Biden being sworn in uh, on Wednesday. I think she wants to wait past the confirmation of at least the sort of most senior and most critical national security and economic cabinet members. And then I think she may want to take the temperature of, of where things are, because the last thing Democrats want, I believe, is another impeachment trial that ends in an acquittal. I think that that they would they would they would face some backlash for that. Now on Tuesday, shortly before we began to speak, Mitch McConnell announced uh, that he held the president responsible for misleading the rioters and seemed to lean further in the direction of saying that more than being open to convicting the president in the Senate trial, which is what he'd previously said that perhaps he's leaning in that direction. Mitch McConnell could bring, I think, on board the 16 other Republicans required for a conviction. And I think Pelosi may be wanting to to send it over when she's got a clearer sense of the prospect that there'll be a conviction. Um, I still think there may be a, a moment in which the Supreme Court says you can't have a Senate impeachment trial for someone who's left office. It's possible. But if there's a trial... I think Pelosi is looking to tee things up, minimum interference for Joe Biden getting off to a fast start, maximum possibility of a conviction.
1: So with all that being said and your thoughts on how Mitch McConnell may actually be a little bit more, I won't say aggressive, but open yep. to that idea. Huh? Do you think that President Biden will step in and encourage the impeachment process to end, or will he just keeping keep deferring, defer, defer?
2: It seems like um he sees this as something that he just has to accept. Um, again, uh, uh, all politics is local, probably one of the smartest things anybody ever said about politics. And for members of Congress, had this attack not been on their sanctuary, on the, on the Capitol of the United States, I don't know that they feel quite as strongly as they do, but they certainly feel strongly. And Joe Biden, again, a creature of Capitol Hill, longtime Senator from Delaware, I think he understands at least the, the, the passions that exist mostly amongst Democrats, but amongst some Republicans as well over and above the constitutional issues involved in such an attack timed as it was on the day when the when they were ascertaining the electoral college votes. So I don't see at this point Joe Biden getting in the way here of of uh, the trial, but I certainly think that he will minimize how much he talks about it and try to deflect attention away from that on the second track of again trying to pass this big pandemic relief bill, immigration, the early executive orders he'll do. So if he could stop it without fingerprints on it, I think he might. And this, of course, is, is connected to the larger question that'll probably be longer running about how does he feel about criminal prosecution of Donald Trump by federal authorities, by state or local authorities in Georgia, in New York, maybe in Florida. Joe Biden's going to have to address that as well. Is it possible he might pardon Donald Trump for federal prosecution? Hasn't been talked about much. He'd certainly face a backlash from the left. but. When Gerald Ford pardoned a president of his own party, President Nixon, he cast it as trying to put uh, the past behind us to try to move on. Perhaps Joe Biden would do that. But I think for now, as I said, he's going to try to ignore impeachment, ignore these other swirling questions that will follow Donald Trump out of the White House.
1: So speaking of following Donald Trump out of the White House, as we know, today is his last day. Do you feel the, the opportunity for the president to self-pardon is on the table?
2: He's been told, I know, by lots of lawyers that a self-pardon wouldn't do him any good, that, in fact, would be counterproductive, that that it's not clear that the courts would find that a president can self-pardon, and that a pardon implies acknowledgement of guilt, that you've done something wrong that requires a pardon. And a self-pardon might open him up to um, uh, either criminal uh, problems uh, at the state level, perhaps at the federal level, if the self-pardon wasn't allowed, and also potentially to civil cases. So, by hunch right now, assuming it hasn't changed while we've been talking, is that he won't pardon himself and that he won't pardon his family members either.
1: We talked earlier about social media, Facebook, Twitter. We all know how much President Trump enjoys being in the media. Do you think that he'll still be part of the nation's daily media diet or will he retreat, regroup, retrench?
2: Yeah, I thought he was going to. I thought that the press would, would, would want it, that his supporters would want it, that he would be very aggressive. What happened on January 6th, I think changed things. And I think there's a, a feeling even amongst many Republicans that it's time for him to go, that he should be more like a normal ex-president uh, who typically, as you know, don't, don't dominate the discussion and, and go quiet and, and generally stay quiet for quite some time. Um, so my guess is that, that the bar for what he'll have to do to get in the news is pretty high. And so that, that on, the, on the demand side, the demand won't be won't be there from the media and from a lot of Americans. Now, will his supporters want to hear from him, perhaps through social media channels? I think so. I think the biggest question is, how much does Donald Trump want the spotlight? He's always wanted it. From before he entered politics, he's always wanted the spotlight. That's been oxygen for him, his media coverage. Will he feel that way after what's happened? Will he feel that way uh, when there's nothing immediately on the table that that presents an opportunity for him to talk? Will he want to run in 2024? I think we have to wait and see what he chooses to do. But as I said, I think he may well be surprised at how high the bar is for news organizations to say that's news that's worthy of covering rather than just the sound of an ex-president somewhere in space.
1: So we know that 24 hours is a lifetime in politics. What's the 2024 presidential landscape look like to you?
2: Well, it's a it's a lot of uncertainty, uh, because I think people who say Joe Biden definitely won't run again are wrong. I think if he's healthy and and feeling good and having some success, uh, uh, even moderate success, and we get past the midterm elections, I think it'd be it'd be wrong for him politically to say he's not going to run. and he's already sent signals that he, he recognizes being a lame duck is not a position of strength. But given his age and given uh, the nature of his candidacy, I, it's possible that we would have the 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 you know, uh, specter of something that hasn't happened in a super long time, which is a President of the United States not term limited but not running for reelection. Uh what that would do on the Democratic side, who knows, particularly given that Senator Harrison w- would get a lot of deference from a lot of people if she chose to run, and I think she would. The Republican side is going to be defined to a very large extent by what Donald Trump does. If he runs for, uh, off the office again, I don't think there's anybody close to him in terms of following in the Republican party he is because of his loss in November because of what happened on January sixth he's a diminished king but he's still king of the hill it's a smaller hill but he's still king of the hill and and there's no clear uh, person to be a powerful alternative to that so things will crystallize perhaps he'll surprise us and take himself out of the running early on but what the Republican Party stands for, either after Donald Trump's presidency or after Donald Trump, is not clear. He was so different than all previous Republican nominees. Has he broken the mold? You know, Previously, if you wanted to be the Republican nominee for president, you had to be one of three things. You had to be the person who had finished second the previous nomination fight, you had to be a sitting or former vice president, or you had to be named Bush. Those were the options. I uh, You know are those still the way we measure who's going to be the Republican nominee, or is it going to be somebody more like Donald Trump? We just don't know, and that experiment will play out whether Trump runs or not really uh on you know the 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 blood sweat and tears the the flesh and blood of 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 how politics works and and I don't have any clue where that's headed
1: you know, it's interesting you know you saw the Democrats have something similar when. Donald Trump won four years ago, and they didn't know who they were, what they stood for, Yeah. And now, four years later, got the same thing with Republicans.
2: Yep. It's, like it's, said, very, it's, it's very difficult when you lose a presidential election to kind of regroup and figure out where you're headed. I think that we've never seen a vacuum the size or nature of the one the Republican Party is facing this week, where Donald Trump leads the stage, because there's never been a someone who's so dominated the national culture as a president as Donald Trump did.
1: So you've joined Newsmax TV, hosting your focus group program. What are some of the most surprising or alarming and reassuring things that you learned from those sessions?
2: Yeah. In terms of surprising uh, support for Donald Trump, uh, since the election, I've asked most of the Republicans who participated, "Would would you be inclined to support Donald Trump again for president if he ran in four years? And almost every Republican says yes. And when I say, well, let's say he's off the table, who would you support? A lot of them say they'd support Donald Trump Jr. That surprised me a lot. Um, I know he's you know put himself out there and he's certainly got a following, but the fact that they're basically no longer Republicans but Trump supporters, regardless of who the Trump is, that that has surprised me. I'm alarmed by the tensions that exist that I mentioned earlier. I find it troubling just how reflexively negative people are. And I tell the groups before we get underway. Please don't be rude to each other. I want you to inter- interact and engage and s- express disagreements when you feel them, but don't be rude. And they're not always able to adhere to that, not because I think they're mean-spirited generally, but because the tensions are so high, the passions are so high. The thing that makes me uh, most optimistic, besides what I mentioned before, which is the the amiable chat that occurs when we're not actually doing the program and talking about politics, is the, the um, uh, engagement that people have. The the, the the clear um, uh, concern for America and America's future, unfortunately, that expresses itself uh, in, in the last few weeks with a lot of the Republicans parroting the president, saying the election was stolen, saying that Antifa led the raid in the Capitol to hurt the president. The, the absence of uh, accepted facts or the absence of the agreement about accepted facts is very troubling. And I think the president uh, deserves a lot of responsibility for that. I think people on the left need to accept the fact that, that, that some of their supporters believe things that aren't true as well. This is not just a one-sided problem, but the biggest problem right now is, is how many Americans parrot the president and say the, the election result was not, was not uh, on the up and up, and I think that's going to be one of the big challenges Joe Biden faces, but I hear it almost every week in my focus groups.
1: Incredible. I know your newsmax program and Wide World of News keep you very busy. But like I said, when we were swapping emails last week, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. You're such a productive writer. Do you have any new projects in the works?
2: Well, right now, because I'm focused on trying to get the presumption of grace out there. Um, I don't know exactly which direction it's gonna go. I'm trying to, I'm not trying to raise money currently for it. This is all a volunteer uh, you know, grassroots effort. There's no structure. Uh, or anything except, except a couple of colleagues who work with me on it, but I would like to figure out a way for it to succeed by enough measures that it catches on, that it gets it the kind of attention uh, for the idea that, that I hope it can get and, um, and that we can really change the culture of the country. I'm also super interested in financial literacy and trying to figure out ways to, um, to create less inequality between Americans, particularly when it comes to, to, to non-white Americans, so that people have more of an, have a chance, more of an equal chance to and sufficient chance to thrive uh, in our market economy. Uh, so those are the, besides, besides my work covering politics and news um, uh, and doing those focus groups, uh, those are the two issues that I'm most passionate about right now.
1: We have just a few minutes left, Mark. And, and as you know, Next Steps Forward is about personal empowerment and well-being. Between COVID and the political upheaval and divisions that we're experiencing in America right now, I think quite a few people feel either powerless or not really in control of their lives. Yeah. What are some things people can do in 2021 to feel more empowered, more control of their lives, you know, and hopefully better about themselves?
2: Yeah. I'd say three things. One is to take care of yourself physically and mentally. Uh, Eat well, uh, go the extra mile to eat, eat, you know, lean proteins and vegetables, exercise, exercise, really try to keep your body in good shape and then keep your mind in good shape. Really try to focus on uh, extending the presumption of grace to others, but also to yourself, which is one of the hardest things, the hardest thing, one of the hardest things for me, but extend the presumption of grace. Second is I think, try to be on good terms with those around you. Sometimes it's not possible, but really try to recognize that there's really nothing more important uh, than good relationships with your children, with your colleagues, with your friends and neighbors, Really try to stand good terms with folks and not let things spiral into a bad place. We're all guilty of doing that at times, but I think it's important to try to avoid that as much as possible. And then finally, care about our society. Really um, think about uh, how to do things in a positive way. If you're blessed enough to be able to have a job that you love doing, where going to work doesn't seem like going to work, that's great. If you're not in that position, try to engage with our society in a way that gives back that reflects a belief that that we're all in this together, that this is a, a country with a lot of challenges right now that we're best able to meet them. If people really focus on trying to make things better, it can be small things, it can be large things, but you have to con- be concerned about things bigger than yourself.
1: You know, like you, I'm very optimistic for the future, and hopefully once we get through tomorrow with the, uh, the inauguration, we can start the healing process. You know, we are the United States of America. Right now, I think it's a name only. So hopefully that uh, that can change over the next four years. Hopefully sooner there are, than
2: that. There are states at least. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. Maybe not the United part, but we have states.
1: <laughs> Mark Halpern, it's been a real honor and thrill to have you on Next Steps Forward today. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: Really great to be with Chris. Great to talk to you and to talk to your listeners. Thank you.
1: And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.